This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our final episode of our discussion of Paulo Coelho's world-famous book, The Alchemist. Today's episode is called, An Ending or a Beginning, Magic or Real? That's right, and Magically Real is the theme for the day. I've talked about this book being meant to be read differently from ordinary fiction, and that's just absolutely the way you have to read this book. If you read this book with this literary critical eye, you're just not going to like it. And I've perused some Brazilian critical interpretations, and it's really struggled to be well-received on this critical level. So what you need to do is just suspend criticism and allow Coelho to elevate you to his magical place, because magic is the word of the day. And as we come to our final episode in our allegorical walk across northern africa magic is going to help you enjoy it kind of like we talked about in the last book you can't be realistic to watch james bond (laughs) (laughs) that's right there's a lot of movies that can't be uh enjoyed if you put too much realism in it and that's how we are here (laughs) well before we go any farther uh i'm going to put christy on the spot uh not a christy fun fact today but but it's going to be uh (laughs) give us a portuguese phrase because in honor of this being a brazilian author and you happen to actually have this book in portuguese in front of you or you've read both (laughs) versions in English and Portuguese. Give us a phrase in Portuguese. Quando você está em busca da sua lenda pessoal, o universo conspira para te ajudar a realizar. Which, of course, means if you are out looking for your personal legend, the universe will indeed conspire to help you reach it. Oh, I'm glad. That's a loose translation. Okay, I'm, say, I'm glad you translated because I had no idea. All right, well, uh, getting back to this trip, uh, magical trip across North Africa. 
if you truly were to walk that route today that Santiago goes on, it would be quite a journey. In fact, one has to suspend reality just to imagine how this could be done. This isn't a journey for the faint-hearted. So we looked at the mileage and just the physicality of this very exotic terrain. And now, of course, we don't know uh, which pyramid Santiago went to because this is fiction. But let's assume that he's headed for the most famous pyramids, um, the ones at Giza, right outside of Cairo. According to Google Maps, that is a 4,187-kilometer walk. And Google estimates it would take you about 35 days and 12 hours to walk it. And that is assuming the walk is pleasant. And keep in mind, the walk being pleasant through the Sahara Desert. Uh, Google also has a warning on the bottom of the map that this estimate may not reflect the real world conditions of the trek itself. So indeed, there is some magical stuff going on. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up because I had asked you to look up some of the most famous oases in that part of the world because honestly, I have a lot of trouble visualizing, visualizing in my mind what that's supposed to look like. And as a literary person, I know that he's... That's by design. I can't imagine that it's a coincidence that Coelho set his pilgrimage, it could have been anywhere on planet Earth, in one of the most unknown and unnavigated parts of the entire planet. I feel like uh, he did this because people don't know what it's like to walk across the Sahara Desert. And it still cracks me up, and I know I talked about this last week, that when you typed in Google Maps how long it would take to walk from Tangiers to Mecca... Google Maps told you you couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can't get there from here. No. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, you said the most famous oasis. All right. If you want to put in Google and you want to search for the most famous oasis, what you're going to get is a British rock band from the 90s. <laughs> I mean, it dominates all the top hits. If okay. you want to go to the geographical version of oasis. Yeah, the oasis that people don't actually go I think, to. I think you have to go to page 47 of your Google search <laughs> to get past the English band, which, by the way, oasis, the English band, is awesome. Uh, they Clearly. Were huge in the 90s. 90s, but uh, they have nothing to do with this story that we're, we're talking about right here. But I, I can't say that there are any really famous oases because they're literally spots out in the middle of the desert. And what makes them uh, set apart from other geographical features is that for some unexplained reason, they have a water supply. And for some unexplained reason, date trees grow really well. And the, the combination of the water and the food supply will bring about a settlement and technically if you're going to have an oasis you also have to have people that are part of it to help make it considered technically an oasis so, so it's there a small are people watering that hole. kind of live out there or is this kind of rare really to actually encounter well there are people that live at them yes uh, and of course i don't know how rare it is not having been to the sahara myself across north africa i can't speak out of experience but uh, <laughs> Me but they are out there and uh they're for real in a story that's very magical before we get to the story i do want to give a shout out to everyone taking the alchemist challenge it's an amazing thing to take a journey with someone and of course that's mostly what the story is all about and taking real journeys and real adventures, from my perspective, is a super important part of life. I take students somewhere out of Memphis and always have every year. When I first started, I took them to places close like St. Louis, Nashville. When I lived in Arkansas, we came to Memphis. But a couple of years ago, I got brave and started taking kids to Europe, like you did before me. 
And that's when I saw the difference adventures can make. Tremendous differences. Memorable ones. So, if you're taking the Alchemist Challenge, before you talk about anything else, talk about an adventure. Tell a story about a time when you left home. Maybe it was the first time. Maybe it wasn't even far away. But you left. Where did you go? What happened? And then come back to our journey because that's exactly where we left Santiago. Santiago has met the love of his life and he's telling her about his life as a shepherd, the king, the crystal shop. But before we go any farther, Gary, give us a synopsis about what's going to happen between now and the end of the book. Uh, Before I do, I do want to say that, yes, whether you like this book or you don't like it, whether you critically uh, acclaim it or not, at the end of the day, this is an adventure story, and people love adventure stories, and so that's why we're sticking to this theme of adventure. So, going forward towards the end of the book, because we have a habit of giving away the story before we talk about it, uh, so they're uh, at, in the desert at the Oasis, um, Santiago will finally meet the alchemist, and they have a very interesting meeting. Um, there's a war going on in the desert, so people are stranded at the Oasis. He's met Fatima, the love of his life. Uh, eventually, the alchemist and Santiago will leave the oasis. They're going to wander the desert. There's going to be several endless pearls of wisdom uh, that they're going to be spoken while they're out in the desert. There's a lot of discussion about the soul of the world and following your legend, and they really flesh that out a lot. And there's a lot about the what you're supposed to be and the omens and things of that nature. So. Uh, one of the things I want to point out before we go any farther real quickly is about why you have to follow your legend because the alchemist is talking to Santiago and he says, if you don't follow your, your legend, then a series of things are going to happen to you. He says, let me tell you what will happen. You'll be the counselor of the oasis. You will have enough gold to buy many sheep and many camels. You'll marry Fatima and you'll be happy for a year. You'll learn to love the desert, and you'll get to know every one of the 50,000 palms. You'll watch them as they grow, demonstrating how the world is always changing, and you'll get better and better at understanding omens because the desert is the best teacher there is. Sometime during the second year, you'll remember the treasure. The omens will begin insistently to speak of it. Then he goes on to say, during the third year, the omens will continue to speak of your treasure and your personal legend. Fatima will be unhappy because she will feel it was she who interrupted your quest. And then when we get to the dreaded fourth year, that's when it all gets bad. At that point, the omens will tell you that your treasure is buried forever. And the omens will abandon you because you stopped listening to them. So... (laughs) That's ominous. That is ominous. You got a four-year window to follow the omens. So anyway, <laughs> they discuss that. Then they have discussions about the heart. At some point, they're surrounded by warring tribal leaders. Santiago has discussions with the desert, the wind, and the sun, which is when I guess our magical realism is going to come into play because Santiago at one point will become the wind. And then Santiago leaves the desert, and he finally gets to the pyramids. And at the pyramids, he discovers and understands that his treasure is really back home in Andalusia. But he's happy about that. (laughs) I would be, too, because who wants to stay in the desert? (laughs) Yes. There you go. That's the short version. Well, we're going to try to look at this in kind of a a linear way. And I do want to bring out the fact that this book is not meant really to be read in any kind of linear way. And he's talking to us in narrative form. So the way the Greeks would talk about things, 
through reason, he's going to take all these ideas and put them in stories because there's something about our minds that understand things through stories. So through stories, we're going to learn what we're calling these seven rules. And these are just arbitrary that we made up that we see him kind of going over and over and over again and uh, kind of reinforcing in narrative form. And the first of these, of course, is this concept that you just talked about, which is leaving. And rule number one, we saw at the very beginning, he says, leave the sheep. And I guess you can say um, that he's talking with Fatima in the very beginning about all the times that he left the sheep. And the sheep are different things because in the beginning, the sheep were, you know, blah people or people that weren't doing anything. And then he gets to, in Tangiers, he leaves the shopkeeper who isn't a do-nothing, but he's still kind of a negative example. He doesn't want to follow his personal legend. Right. He doesn't want to, he wants to settle. And so here, we see, he missed his little four-year window. <laughs> he did. Here, we're going to see that Fatima is going to leave. Uh, Fa, I mean, Santiago is going to leave Fatima. And Fatima, unlike the crystal merchant, is not a negative example. She's a positive example. And she's a positive example for a lot of reasons. And I want to talk about these because it feels like, in some ways, she's not a very significant character in the story. But in another way, she's a driving force in the story. And she's kind of the opposite of what you would expect uh, people to say. So in a traditional story, you would think that he would find the love of his life and then they would run off together and they would live happily ever after. But here, uh, we're going to see that Santiago is going to leave Fatima. And uh, maybe it's because uh, I'm a woman, I'm drawn to this. But what makes her a positive example is that she's willing to give up Santiago for Santiago to be the best version of himself, no matter what it cost her. Now, Although that's not a complete definition, to me, it's a very good example of what it means to be loved by someone. Of course, um, we have two girls in college, and they are definitely not without their boy drama. Some of the boys in their life I like, some of them I don't. But as the girls get involved with different boys, what I look for as a mom is, does this boy want what's best for my daughter or does he see my daughter as a compliment to his existence? She's fun. She makes his world better. But when you love someone, you want to make their world better. And we see this here. Uh, he wants to stay and serve Fatima, but because she loves him, and although this would be easy for her to allow him to do this, she pushes him out. And she wants him to be the best version of himself. So she basically shoves him out the door into the desert, which is an uncomfortable place, really. <laughs> but she doesn't want to be guilty of him missing out on his personal legend. Right, because she wants him to be the best version of himself. So she is a person in his life, and you want people in your life who want you to be better. That's just it's an it's an unusual definition of what I think true love is and what he's trying to describe in Fatima is true love and so true love is a person that allows you to leave if that's what you need to do. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's a good application of rule number one, and I think we've completely stretched it 
<laughs> as far as it can be stretched. I think but, he stretches it. Well, well, the book is open-ended. That's the whole yeah. point. And one of the reasons why you have so many different ethnic, nationality, economic groups that love the book is that people are able to project themselves into the book easier than they are into most other books because it's so open-ended. So, yeah, you can read this book and you could make yourself Fatima if you want to be. Right, or Santiago, and you're looking for that Fatima that's going to make you brave and push you out. Yeah. Yeah. So, say whatever you think there, but end it with, yes, she was encouraging him to get to rule number two and be the protagonist of his own life. And uh, just like before, Coelho has expanded how this is supposed to be interpreted. Um, In this case, Santiago has to go out into a very difficult desert. It's filled with warriors, and in one case, a poisonous cobra snake. Uh, (laughs) This is about bravery, and Fatima makes him brave. And, And that's actually another sign of what real love looks like, helping somebody be brave. And, of course, we have this discussion about courage when we introduce the Englishman Again, talking about how fear of failure kept him from reaching his personal legend, which was also the problem with the shopkeeper before. And so, and, and it's something that, that the book definitely wants to hammer away at that point. Uh, so we have the stranger on the horseman telling Santiago, Courage is the quality most essential to understanding the language of the world. Which, of course, is rule number three. Identify your passion, your dream, your motivating drive, your personal legend because when he has that conversation with the stranger that's when he realizes he has just met the alchemist which is a big deal and i would like to point out the minute he meets the alchemist the englishman just disappears from the story (laughs) i thought poor englishman he's dropped off the face of the earth that's true because you know he has that fear oh no okay (laughs) well uh, we're going to revisit this idea of personal legend a couple times because... It's, How about 20 times? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a moving target because what it is can evolve. And, of course, Santiago recognizes uh, through his conversation with the alchemist, through his conversation with Fatima, that he can't stay at the oasis. As wonderful as it is, he would feel incomplete. So he has to move out, and he leaves with the alchemist. The alchemist tells him... Actually, point blank. When a person really desires something, and of course that's the... Here we go. Say it with us. (laughs) The universe will conspire (laughs) (laughs) to help that person realize his dreams. And that's uh, uh, one more final idea that we're going to see him throw out on this. uh, Because he says it in that section again multiple times, but he ends it with this idea that if you don't, you're going to get restless, and your the idea of peace in your heart is is available when you feel like you're achieving some sort of goal or pursuing some sort of what we're going to call personal legend. And I think at the end of this episode today, we'll spend a few moments trying to um, operationally define some of these nebulous ideas, so that you walk away with something interesting that you can really hang on to out of the book. Uh, but anyway, so we're going to go on to rule number four. This is where we need to operationally uh, define. <laughs> Learn <luck. laughs> to recognize omens, uh, which we've had a couple of discussions trying to figure out what those are. Uh, in the first section, it really seemed uh, like the omens were internal. Things 
emotions, feelings, inclinations, intuitions, these things inside him that were pushing him outward. But then he gets to the Urim and Thummim, and these are physical objects that give him encouragement as to what direction to take, and they're exterior, they're That's, outside of him. Yeah, and then he goes even farther. When he's over at the crystal merchant, he sees a man needing a drink, and we have this definition of looking at opportunities and pursuing and taking advantage of ideas and, and things that you see in the world and, and chasing after them. And this definition is going to spring even farther. And this is where we're going to get into, well, and this is where the story just goes crazy. And we, we're going to jump into the magical part. Of and we story. have to have the what's called the willing suspension of reality, <laughs> which you do all the time when you watch TV shows. Yeah. Anyway. In this section, the omens are actually physical birds and then other elements of nature that actually exist in the world but couldn't actually exist in this context of the story. True, and let me give you the specifics. Uh, First of all, at one point, he's going to look up and he's going to see a pair of hawks flying in the sky. He watches the hawks. They're going to drift, and these these hawks are going to um, flash down and dive at each other and with this he's going to see uh this hallucination of the armies coming and then he's going to know that they're getting ready to be invaded and he's going to have to do something this is an omen of an attack so obviously this can't really happen and this is where we enter into this idea of magical realism now i want to take a step back Uh, in the 1920s there arose a movement in the literary world called magical realism and To be honest, it's mostly understood as a South American thing, although it's really not totally Latin. There's several prominent examples of writers, most famously Salman Rushdie, that that use the style magical realism. But anyway, magical realism is a genre of writing, film, or visual arts, and I'm going to, this is a definition that I pulled, where fantastic elements are accepted as true within an otherwise normal setting. Now, what does that mean? This is different from fantasy because in a fantasy world, everything is crazy and it's fantastical. But, and it's different from romanticism because in romanticism, like the supernatural elements are kind of subtle. But what we just, what we see here is that magic is just going to occur. And so far, the story has been kind of realistic, trying to stay within the realms of what could really physically happen. So, uh, Another writer said it this way. He says, readers of magical realist fiction must look beyond the realistic detail and accept the dual ontological structure of the text. Which, what does that mean? It means that the natural and the supernatural, the unexplainable and the miraculous, they're going to exist side by side. And you're just kind of looking at them kind of randomly. So there's this, it's real, but it's kind of hyper real. And I don't... You can't really understand it, except I just gave you an example of what that looks like. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did explain that. Because if you go to a Star Wars movie, you expect fantasy from the very beginning. Uh, When you read um, Harry Potter, you expect fantasy from the very beginning. When you read The Alchemist, it starts off with a very believable story and many elements. And all of a sudden, we go to these fantastic elements. Right, and in this part of the story, you're going to see some supernatural and it's going to, you know, miraculous things happening and they're going to coexist with explainable things. And so that's where we get this magical 
Realism. Which I think is interesting that that is particularly Latin. What is it about Latin culture? I'm not expecting you to answer this, but what is it about that culture that makes this very specific literary thing occur there, but not in other parts of literature? Well, I actually can speak to that. Oh, well, uh, well, yeah, because it's an interesting uh, genre, and I'm not, to be honest, super informed really about it, but I do think it's fascinating that it has emerged amongst peoples, and this is not just Latin peoples, but Salman Rushdie is another example of this, who are under supreme trauma. Of course, the most famous uh, writer is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He won the Nobel Prize uh, for his book. He he wrote about his experiences of Colombia. We have Carlo Fuentes of Panama. We have Mario Vargas Llosa of Peru. He also won a Nobel Prize. We have Isabel Allende of Chile, and of course, my daughter Anna's favorite, Laura Esquivel. So they're writing about places where they're oppressed by like tyrant people mm-hmm. and they're 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 very very bad things it's not war where you have man versus man and everything is fair it's not it's about deeper oppression where you don't have a fighting chance through natural means and so the writings tend to go metaphysical or supernatural so in other words you're looking to the universe Maybe it's not really conspiring to help you. (laughs) Like in this case, a lot of those books are really dark. But there are metaphysical forces at play that you see working in what Coelho has done. He's kind of made it optimistic following the omens of God, the universe. Coelho doesn't want to make you define your faith. But in these stories, the magic helps the writer to explain if not navigate impossibly difficult situations that you can't get out of in normal ways. And that's kind of where you see this whole genre emerge. That's, if I may be so bold and suggest such a thing. Well, that <laughs> clarifies it for me. That helps me understand Well, it. and you're going to see the impossibility of his situations. They're just going to blow out to where you couldn't possibly survive this stuff. Right. And the wind, he turns into the wind. Things are going to happen that's not real. But you, in some, maybe in some metaphysical way, it, it could be real. Because it is true that there are people that survive impossible situations and you don't really know how it happens. Right. Well, and we're belaboring this point for a moment, mostly because we realize, uh, especially a lot of um, uh, readers in the United States would be going through this book and they'd go, wait a minute, how did we become the wind in the story? So it, it helps explain. And they explain, want to throw it out. Yeah. Right. That, that this is uh, not part of the story that you skip. It's a design element, much like... Uh, every other book we've covered has a design element to it that you want to be aware of. So anyway, well, thanks for clarifying that. So now that takes us to rule number five, follow the omens until you make it happen, no matter the cost, the sacrifice, or where it takes you. And he really takes a risk by confronting the leaders of the Oasis with his vision, but in his heart, he felt a strange sense of joy, even though he was potentially about to die in pursuit of his personal legend. Right, and that's just at the Oasis, because this is going to happen again. So he confronts the leaders at the Oasis. He tells them what's going to happen, and things work out well. But then he and the alchemists are going to leave, and they're going to take this trek through the the desert. They go for days and days and days, and then things become uh, more and more treacherous. Uh, and they have, of course, natural problems that you would expect them to confront, but more, diff- but more uh, to the point, they have actual terrorist people that... <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
How about warring tribes? Warring tribes that approach them. And, of course, he has to follow and confront these two, and he thinks it's going to be the end. Right. And that brings us to rule number six. In the midst of all this potential near-death experience, rule number six, look for beauty along the way. So carry the spoon without spilling the oil. So how is he going to look for beauty in all these near-death experiences? Well, I really had to think about that, and I thought, well, maybe I am stretching the definition of these things a little bit more. But as he goes through this, the desert, he, he looks at the universe, he's talking to the universe, he sees the wind, and he becomes a part of the wind, and he sees the falcons, and he sees the birds, and then he's going to start saying he sees, like, Everything that is created in the universe, he begins to realize that everything, the unity of the universe, it kind of sort of makes sense to him. And then he kind of takes Which it. Which is a huge, huge thing to understand. Yeah, and he takes it uh, to a metaphysical way. And he's going to say, wow, we have the same soul. I want to be like you. I'm going to be able to reach the corner of the world across the seas to blow away the sands that cover my treasure carry the voice of the woman I love. So it brings him back to Fatima. So he's able to find the connective beauty into all of these physical elements incorporate them into himself and find love there i don't know if that's a thing but it's a beautiful idea well it is and at one point the the alchemist will tell him look at a single grain of sand if you understand a single grain of sand you understand the universe well that's a that's a lot of beauty in a small thing and of course one of the themes that is just tied together throughout the whole entire book is the interconnectedness of everything. And this is Quayle's philosophy. This is his life philosophy that he goes to great lengths to put in the story at every conceivable possible moment. And that's moment. one reason why, I, I mean, I'm going to superimpose whatever he thinks. Of course, I don't know what Quayle was thinking, but I really do think that's why he. there's no problem with, in my mind of jumping to him turning into wind when he tells the alchemist, just teach me to be the wind for a few moments. So you and I can talk about the limitless possibility of people in the winds. If you can follow his line of reasoning, it's not a, a difficult jump to accept the idea that, okay, this guy's going to turn into winds. And, you know, what, like we talked about in an earlier podcast, it's obvious that Coelho is a right-brainer. What that means is he's very holistic in his thinking, in, in his whole entire approach to the world, and it just comes out in just nearly every page of the book. Yes, because as he looks at the wind and asks to be turned into the wind, he's going to say, this is what we call love. When you are loved, you can do anything in creation. When you are loved, there's no need at all to understand what's happening because everything happens within you, and even men can turn themselves into the wind as long as the wind helps, of course. Well, and of course, there's a the discussion, you know, he's having a discussion with the natural elements where he purposely makes them jealous because he understands love and they don't. So they go on to help him achieve his mission. And that takes us to number seven. We get to listen to the language of the universe. And of course, he takes that to a magical level, too, because at the beginning of the book, you know, the the world of the language of the universe was more intuition looking at people he would talk about oh i can talk to the sheep and he would go to tangiers oh i can understand what these people are saying even though we don't speak to speak the same language we're communicating and now you're taking that same concept and just blowing it out to the magic of the wind yes and say so you you really have to follow him a long way 
to get what he means by this. But this idea of this concept of love, I think that's the example that he's using because that's maybe something that we can understand is transcendent enough that it's evident in, in the very essence of nature itself. Yes, and I think it's also a literary technique of writers to greatly exaggerate an idea yes. to make the point, and he's exaggerating it out so far out there. So if you uh, get hung up on the magical realism and dislike the book for that reason, well, then you've read the wrong book. But if you really want to understand, there is an author's style, and that's one of the reasons why we selected this book, because there's a definitive style to it. Well, and it's nice. It's a nice idea when he says, it's not love to be static like the desert, nor is it love to roam the world like the wind, and it's not love to see everything from a distance. Love is the force that transforms and improves the soul of the world. And to some degree, that's absolutely true it's true with your relationship with nature itself as you love flowers you know you nurture them and and in essence they love you back by providing beauty to you so you can look at it that way yes if if, you're of that mind yeah and he wants you i mean i think that's what he's saying be of that mind yes just just be of that mind yeah well (laughs) what's so interesting about this book and different from every other book that we've read this book is an endless string of favorite quotes for people. Yeah. For people who like the book, they'll have six or seven quotes that are just all over the place. So most books are not segmented in the way they're written where you can pull out so many one-liners that have meaning. This book is full of one-liners that people could like have made into tattoos. Well, and he takes you, so he's taking you to this idea. Just leave, be courageous, follow the universe. Find the groove of the world. Uh, find the soul of the world. And, the, and he says, The boy reached through to the soul of the world and saw that it was part of the soul of God. And he saw that the soul of God was his own soul and that he, a boy, could perform miracles. And that's where we're getting to the empowerment thing. If you can, Because the suggestion is, Who's the alchemist? Who's performing miracles in this world? Who's making the changes? What do you- well, interestingly enough, we need to talk about what the alchemist means, don't we? The title? I think we do. Okay. Uh, so these are kind of some concluding thoughts on the book. First of all, the, an alchemist as a, as a profession, if you will, is about somebody who takes common things and through their uh, special abilities turns them into gold. And that's exactly what Coelho is doing the whole book with Santiago. You are the alchemist because you take all of your common experiences and you give them meaning and you turn them into gold. And you find love along the way. You find beauty along the way. Yes, if you look for it. You make friends along the way. It's a lovely way to live, and it's a brave way to live. It is, and and I want to address that because um, for the alchemist, the philosophy of life, uh, questions, obstacles, and insecurity are all necessary ingredients right. in the world. They're a they're lot like, of pain. They're, in this the, book. they're a defining element of our humanity and transforming them is your journey. So that's your alchemist journey is to take all these 
disconnected, painful things and turn them into something valuable for yourself. And so uh, I also want to point this out. The, the alchemist is certainly not a deterministic philosophy. And that's something a lot of Westerners are used to, this whole idea, nature versus nurture. Um, or, uh, well, let me just say, this book really is anti-deterministic in the biggest way. It appeals to people who struggle with self-determination, people who are struggling with some self-efficacy or some agency or internal locus of control or direction in their life. It really resonates with them. Uh, this book really encourages introspection, like some books don't. I feel well, like. and at the end of the day, when he says, you know, you're going to find your treasure, and he quotes the Bible here, where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. This is the final thing the alchemist said. What is that treasure is not necessarily what you thought it was going to be when you set out to look for it. And I want to throw in another element of Coelho since you brought that up. So he drops in that Bible verse on the tail end. The very sentence before is a clear statement of New Age philosophy. So he has no trouble combining uh, New Age mysticism with Bible verses. They weave in and out all the time. They really do. And because honestly, I don't know that he thinks that they contradict each other right. in the way that traditional people do. When he says the universe is contriving to help you, the Christian may say, you know, God is helping you or there is grace. Yes. For, and so he's, he's saying people say it in different ways, but is it possible that these things could be, if you just took out all the language of culture, yes. could be described mm -hmm. in, a, in this magical way that he's chosen to describe them? Um, I also want to point out the idea. I feel like the book as a theme is really about how do you feel about risk and risk taking? Yes. And some people have very low threshold for risk. Some people have a high threshold for risk. And I think he's pushing people to risk. I think he's yes. going to say, you may not get what you thought you were going to get. Your treasure might not be the pot of gold in this place that you thought it was. Cause that certainly is the alchemist case, mm -hmm. but it could be the best treasure you could have ever had, and you will never find any treasure if you don't take that chance. Well, let me sum up a couple of ideas to, for listeners and get your thoughts on it, what you think. Number one, um, fear is a bigger obstacle than the obstacle itself. I agree. Number two, I believe he's saying what is true will always endure. I agree. Uh Break up, break up your monotony. <laughs> uh, embrace the present. He went to a lot of effort to drill down on that idea of live now, live now, not the past, not the future. Uh, there's another idea. Your success has a ripple effect. And um, make decisions. Above all else, do something. Make decisions. Uh, get back up. Focus on your own journey. Always take some kind of action. And honestly, whether you like the book as a literary piece or not, that's the philosophy of it. And that's what resonates with apparently 250 million people worldwide who've read it. That's right. Listen to the universe of the world. Uh, the language of the world clearly can be translated in multiple versions. And he's autographed every single one of them. <laughs> in, in 52 different languages, right? Right. And look at the beauty along the way. Well, we hope you found something to be encouraged by through Quedu. I think he is encouraging. I think he's wonderfully fun. 
uh, and something to think about, something to be brave about, uh, something to love someone with, all those things wrapped up into a journey which is perilous. I don't want to say that it isn't, but worthwhile, which perhaps is the alchemy of life. There you go. <laughs> and if you just need something lighter after Of Mice and Men, <laughs> there, take you, a, take there you go. Um, well, we hope you have enjoyed it, and we're glad you came along for the discussions. Um, please be our friend. We ask people every week to be our friend. We're shameless about asking for that. But follow us on our Instagram page. Follow us on our Facebook page. You can also check in on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. As we tell you all the time, it's full of teaching supplements. It's got a lot of great things in there for teachers. And next week, before we close out our Latin segment, we are going to talk about the poetry of Pablo Neruda, who is another very optimist and wild character. Not Brazilian, but Chilean. So we can't leave without exploring one more crazy Latin. <laughs> Except this time it'll be in Spanish instead of Portuguese. So exactly. we're both going to be out of our element then. All right. Well, thanks for being along with us. We'll see you next time. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 